0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Luke. How are you doing, Luke?
1: I'm doing all right. Uh, Been busy, but good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's been a little while since we've talked on the show. Um, So there's there's a lot to catch up on the end of the legislative session, a lot of interesting stories nationally and in Georgia. So we're going to try a little experiment this week um, we basically have no plan for what this show is going to be. We are just going to talk for the next hour. We're going to try to hit all the big things that have been going on, try to get some things off of our chest that, that have been, you know, things that have been bouncing around for a little while as the session has ended, as the special election continues to go on. Um, so we are just going to kick it off and just kind of see where it goes. And if you like this little experiment, this kind of free-willing conversation. Yeah, if you like that, let us know. If you thought this was a terrible idea, let us know. Um, But yeah, Luke, what do you want to start with? What is the thing at the top of your mind after the last couple weeks since we recorded?
1: Oh, man, there's so much that's been going on. I think the first thing on top of my mind is surprisingly like Fox News like what is happening over there like they just seem to like caught on fire in the past couple weeks because you know Bill O'Reilly's in all this trouble for you know several sexual harassment lawsuits and they had the problems with Roger Ailes earlier in the year and so you know it's not a usual topic for us but it's just like one that I'm just like what is happening because it just seems like there were obvious decisions to be made to like not allow this culture to develop but it seems that it obviously has So have you have you had any thoughts on this story at all or
0: I don't so I'm not can you just fill us in on the details a little bit this is one that I saw headlines for and I just I don't know it's just another one of those so
1: basically what's happened is slowly but surely ever since the Roger Ailes controversy came out which for those of you who don't remember what it was is that. Basically, Roger Ailes was sexually harassing a lot of the female employees of Fox, a lot of the anchors, including Megyn Kelly and uh, Gresham Carlson, and so there was a big scandal when uh, that was revealed, and so what has now come up is that Bill O'Reilly was basically doing the same thing and that some other people at Fox were as well and and due to the allegations to Bill O'Reilly they've been pulling a lot of sponsors from his program which interestingly enough is the same thing that happened to Glenn Beck for different reasons uh, when he started to lose his show and so there's just been a lot of conversation about what's Bill O'Reilly's future you know what's at the bottom of these allegations and how many people and all those sorts of things. And so it's interesting in the fact that they sort of tried to make the perception that they were cleaning house earlier when they got rid of Roger Ailes, but it seems like it goes deeper than just him. And so there's that. And then, you know, there's just the normal uh, alternate reality that Fox enters into and how closely that they've aligned themselves with Donald Trump, and of course, these are two completely different issues. But it's just, it's just. There's been a lot of weird news about Fox lately because you have situations where, you know, the more legitimate hard news people at Fox, like Shepard Smith and Chris Wallace, and arguably Brett Baer, sometimes have really started to greg against the marching orders of the network, basically being, you know, the Trump version of RT. So that's sort of what's going on in Foxland.
0: Yeah, the thing that stands out to me is Fox has been the number one cable news network for a while, right? Yeah. I think their viewership is higher than CNN and and definitely higher than MSNBC. Somehow MSNBC is like always the loser of the cable news wars. So Fox has a lot of incentive to run their network in a way that's going to make them money. And if they start to lose sponsorships and, and... and this behavior from Bill O'Reilly and the and the allegations that have come out. Um, if it hurts the station, the channel in an economic sense, it'll be interesting to see if they try to change up. Because there's also this mismatch between the more traditional conservative, you know, Paul Ryan type conservative Republican, and then this sort of invasion of the Trump Republican and so it's not surprising to me that sort of from a philosophical standpoint, Fox is probably going to have to kind of change up some of their programming. And if they're also doing that in the midst of these sexual assault allegations and things against Bill O'Reilly and the and the older stuff against Roger Ailes, um, I don't know. It just, I bet that well, once it, we reach the midpoint... Well, what's interesting to
1: me, because that actually combines the two conversations that... Um, it seems that what earlier seemed in Foxland to be sort of an ideology they were pushing, they really seemed to more than anything looking for an economic incentive and like looking for an audience and then shaping their broadcast around that audience. And so, sort of in the same way where a lot of Republicans have jumped on the Trump bandwagon because that seems to be what their voters want. It seems like Fox is making the same decision when it comes to their viewers, and so instead of keeping a consistent, as you said, like Paul Ryan conservatism being what the the network pushed, they're shifting to a more Trumpian narrative and a more Trumpian worldview because that is what their viewers want. And in the same way, if uh, Bill O'Reilly becomes less of a moneymaker and more of a liability, then maybe that will be the thing instead of like ethics or morals that pushes them to push him out.
0: It's interesting how real world events shape the way the media covers them. So I can remember that like the heyday of the Colbert Report and John Stewart was during the end of the Bush administration when there was really good comedy around just the, can you believe this shit that was happening in the Bush administration? And then you switch over to Obama and you don't really have as much at least from like a liberal comedic perspective, you don't really have as much, can you believe this shit going on? And, you know, ultimately both of those shows end in the Obama era. Um, and Colbert ends up on CBS and Jon Stewart is, I don't growing a beard in a forest somewhere, but it'll be interesting to see if that sort same sort of thing happens to Fox, like the, the entire spectrum that they've built their show, their programming around is sort of crumbling around them. You have Greta Van Susteren on MSNBC now. You have Megan Kelly went to NBC, right? I believe so. I don't think she started
1: her new program yet, but I could be wrong.
0: I don't think, I haven't seen her on TV in a while. Um, so I don't, and it, and you sort of got to watch, now that I'm thinking back about it, you kind of got to watch this dual, you know, the one of the first Republican debates, it was clear that, Fox news hosts were trying to challenge Donald Trump and like take him down. This is where that infamous Donald Trump quote about Megyn Kelly came from. in that first big Fox news Republican primary debate. Um, and it, I don't know. It'll be interesting. But to now see you have a won. whole
1: new situation because they're clearly trying to promote him rather than tear him down. Because now we have a situation with Rupert Murdoch, who, you know, is the actual like owner of Fox News, is pretty much talking to Trump like on a very regular basis. Is like the reporting that I've seen is that like they're not necessarily getting marching orders from Trump or anything, but they're definitely in close communication. And I don't think that is irrelevant to what we've been seeing in the coverage there um, and you know, another thing too, that I think is very important to point out is that Megan Kelly, uh, while definitely has some good chops also would feed into and play the game that Fox wanted to play. Cause I mean, there, there's been some great, uh, compilations of just her, talking about the new Black Panther Party and just, like, freaking out about this, like, episode after episode, which is something that I literally can't tell you a single thing about. And, you know, maybe that's a flaw in, like, the stuff that I listen to, but it's just, you know, she definitely was drinking the coffee over, you know, Fox News, and it wasn't a situation where she's A Shining Star against the, you know, weird cultural problems with how Fox approaches stories. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. And the reason I point that out is I'll be curious to see what she does at NBC and if she ends up not having that same profile as she did at Fox.
0: So just to keep it in national politics and and we'll come home to the Peach State, I promise. But uh, last week, Donald Trump launched, ordered, ordered. United States military to launch 59 cruise missiles aimed at a Syrian airport. Uh, This was a, a military airport installation that Syria had launched planes from to launch a chemical weapons attack on some of his own people. There was really just like ugly, saddening video of the aftermaths of this attack that I've seen online in recent days. Um, I'm sure that, you know, y'all have probably caught up on some of the details of this. I don't have them all in front of me right now. But I know that, you know, they they launched these missiles. They hit a Syrian air base. Russia is upset about it. Syria is obviously upset about it. Um, But this was a big, very stark, quick turnaround from the rhetoric that you got from Trump during his run for the White House, where he was very critical of the Obama White House for um, well, he was he was supportive of the idea that the Obama White House ultimately abandoned the red line in Syria, which was the statement that Barack Obama made back before a 2013 chemical weapons attack that if Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, was to use chemical weapons against his own people, that would change the calculation for what the us would do in terms of responding to Syria. In a a military.
1: Can we we go into a a small, like, diversion, mega conversation in this? Because this is something I find fascinating. So, the whole red line thing, which is something that Republicans and a lot of people, you know, people on both sides have obsessed about. At the end of the day, though, if you actually look at when Obama said that, it was during a press conference where he had been talking about it for a while. And it's like clearly something that like he came up with in the moment that he was just saying that like, you know, that'd be a red line for me. That would be something we have to reassess. And so that was an instance where Obama said something that was unplanned that clearly articulated the policy of the United States and made people have assumptions about what the United States was going to do that. If Syria used chemical weapons, that would change his calculus and there would be a result and there would be a change in policy from that. Yeah. That and ultimately in effect, it was a stated happen.
0: policy change,
1: right? And that didn't happen. And so people criticize that in a serious way. And so my point is, I find it fascinating that like thus far, That is just completely out of question with this administration. That literally anything that they say, I don't think anyone takes seriously at all. And no one has an expectation if Donald Trump says he's going to do X on Monday, that on Tuesday he's going to come out there and still say he's going to do X. And no one is surprised by the fact that Donald Trump on Tuesday says he's going to do Y. And I just wonder what the long-term consequences of that are going to be, because in the short term, surprisingly, there's, like, been none. Like, no one seems to care that Trump constantly contradicts himself, and it's either an issue of, like, fatigue, that, like, no one has the, like, ability to keep up with all of his changes, and so at this point, they've just, like, I'm only going to know what Donald Trump's going to do, like, once he does it. Um... I just find that fascinating because in any other context with any other president, something like the red line comment, which was an accident, I think that Obama didn't really think that. And that was just something he said in the moment. uh, And that's a rare thing for him since he was usually pretty good at like saying what he actually meant. Um, That like lack of messaging discipline just like doesn't matter with this administration and no one, no one cares about it whatsoever and so that just shows like how much things have changed in the short time that trump's been president because while you're absolutely right that he was highly critical of the red line comment but then like ultimately approving of the fact that he didn't do anything and basically if trump had a coherent position it would be you really shouldn't have said that there was a red line if they use chemical weapons but if you did say that you should back it up um to me, it's not surprising that he did this, because Trump is very obviously a visual person and very obviously an emotional person, and he reacts to things very viscerally. And so, like, if he, because I'm sure he was watching cable news, because that's what he does instead of getting the presidential daily briefing, he probably saw those videos.
0: Well, this is exactly on- what he said too
1: yeah 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 he did say that right he did say he saw the videos and the beautiful children which he won't leg into the country but you know he'll bomb their country um yeah yeah he said he said that um he saw the videos and that made him want to to do something about it so I, i mean i think that's probably literally what changed his mind and what actually changed the policy of the united states is that he saw these videos and he's like, "Wow, that looks awful. Let's shoot some missiles at these people to stop them from doing that." Um the thing
0: the thing that I don't the thing that I think if you're watching this, the thing to watch for is what the next step is because it is true that Trump before he was elected president was very against intervention in Syria. He was very critical of the doctrine of the Bush administration and what they did in Iraq. I'm I'm very
1: critical of Obama and Libya too.
0: Yeah. Which,
1: Um, which is getting to a point I want to make in minute. but go ahead.
0: And I, I just, I don't, I'm not surprised at all that he changed his mind because I don't get the sense that he has any really like deeply held beliefs. And I do think it makes it challenging for, for instance, for our allies to know what us policy is. The thing that stands out to me though, is that it is not actually only Trump. In the press briefing, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, said when asked, he said he was asked if Assad used more conventional weapons like barrel bombs against his own people. Does that also cross the same line if the victim of Assad's barrel bombs is these same beautiful children that Trump was talking about? Um, And Sean Spicer didn't dismiss. He did not create a US policy in that moment that chemical weapons are sort of a special territory that just the principle on which the US has to discourage their use. He said if barrel bombs were also used um, then the US would have to respond. Well, Assad apparently uses barrel bombs against his own people all the time in the in the process of this Syrian civil war where where Assad is trying to fight ISIS, trying to fight Syrian rebels who want to take back their own country. It's a it's a weird sort of multi-dimensional affair with a lot of other proxy states like the US and Russia and Iran also contributing to this conflict. The whole thing is kind of a mess. Vox has a great video that we'll link to in the show notes on this that tries to explain this, although I'll admit to still being confused after watching it. So the interesting thing to me is what is the next step? If Trump is really serious about seeing images of dead children on TV and deciding that the U.S. should do something, then in effect he is very much closer to the position of somebody like John McCain or Lindsey Graham who wants the U.S. to be very active. They've already come out and said, I think it was McCain that said, either McCain or Graham, one of them said that they wanted to see a force of like five to 7,000 U.S. troops in Syria, that they were proud of what Trump did. But that this was step one and what all of the anti-war folks, both a lot of people in the Democratic Party and a lot of the anti-interventionalist people in the Republican Party that are somewhat the Trump coalition and somewhat the Rand Paul sort of libertarian coalition. They all think that putting troops on the ground is going to draw the U.S. into a long term conflict. The same kind of thing we got into in Iraq and Trump ran on not doing that. So if he is really serious about his rhetoric and if he's really serious about what Sean Spicer said, that would amount to a really really big policy change that you that was not litigated in the campaign. I think the thing just to wrap up well, this that, thought, Well,
1: that's not it was though because he Trump constantly was saying that that's what Clinton wanted to do, that Hillary wanted to like put boots on the ground in Syria. She wanted to escalate the conflict. And that was a bad idea. But that was never
0: something she wanted.
1: Right. But he's very, he very clearly set out a position and his position was to not mess around in this stuff at all.
0: Right. I just think that neither candidate, you know, if you had had John McCain running for president this time around against Hillary Clinton again, (laughs) he would have advocated during that campaign putting troops on the ground. He's been very consistent about that position. And and
1: Lindsey did. Lindsey Graham did do that when he was campaigning.
0: So voters who voted in the general election in 2016 thought neither candidate would get the U.S. into the same Iraq type of conflict that George W. Bush did in the 2000s. Um, So the fact if Trump goes in that direction, that is... That's very monumental in that here's something that was relatively predictable that a candidate that won an election made a promise in one direction completely went in the other direction. That doesn't actually typically happen. Presidents most of the time actually do try to keep their promises generally. Um, You don't see a directional shift in that way that, that you would see if we end up going to war in Syria.
1: Yeah, so I have I have a ton of different angles we could attack this thing with, but I think the most interesting one um, for this, for me, is seeing so many people uh, have hypocritical positions on this, and not just, like, politicians. I mean just, like, people in my own news feeds where, you know, when the chemical weapons attacks happened on, like, Tuesday, I saw a bunch of people being like, oh, my God, we should do something. This is awful. And, you know, there should, you know, they should be consequences for this. And then on Thursday, Trump launches missiles and then everyone <laughs> reverses themselves. And they're like, oh, my God, Trump's, you know, abusing his powers. This is horrible. He shouldn't be doing this. And so I find it very interesting because there was actually polling that came out that showed that Democrats supported Obama taking more action in Syria while he was president. And then Republicans were very, very strongly against it. And now the polling has reversed in that Democrats are very much against Trump taking action in Syria while they are while Republicans are very for Trump taking action in Syria.
0: And so is that that right, though? Because I thought the number that I saw was like something like 37 percent of Democrats supported Obama. Having some sort of military retaliation against Syria in the 2013 red line issue, but now it's like 38% of Democrats support what Trump did. That to me felt relatively consistent.
1: Well, that, yeah, in that
0: case. The Republican number was bizarre. The
1: Republican number did switch. So, yeah, forgive me if the Democratic number stayed the same, because I think you're right, it did.
0: It was like 22% of Republicans supported Obama doing something in Syria and now like 86% we'll link to this because it was a Twitter thing, but it was like 86% of Republicans support what the Trump administration did. Right. Which was this relatively limited strike. Right. At least to this point.
1: So I guess the first thing that I would like to talk about is the fact that this is a proxy war between Russia, and the United States, and this is a conflict that now has been going on for at least three years, probably more like four or five. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's really going to end at any time. And while before these chemical attacks, and this is, I think is very important is the message from the state department, Rex Tillerson, which you rarely hear from them, but you actually heard from them, which was that getting rid of a SOG was not a deal breaker. Basically is what they said. That's not the exact quote, but that was the gist of what they were saying that like, they did not have to get rid of a SOG.
0: To handle yeah, a Syria the Syria problem. It wasn't and, the number one foreign policy priority. In the right, in,
1: in Syria. At that point. They have now completely reversed that as well. And now they have said both Nikki Haley and Rex Tillerson have said very strongly that now Assad has to go, which I also find very interesting because it seems to me that this was an area where they had not really had a fluent policy discussion about, like, what they wanted to do in Syria, and that this chemical attack has completely changed their calculus on everything, which is very odd to me. Um, But more importantly, and what I'm trying to get is, like, I don't think there's a solution to this that people are going to be happy with. Because... We've got three major options, I think, which is one, we kind of do what we have been doing, which was like just cursory, sending supplies to the rebels, trying to attack ISIS in the areas of Syria where they are because they're not in the same place as the rebels and just going about our business. Two is like a Libya-esque scenario where we heavily fund the rebels. We heavily give them a bunch of supplies and we start giving them a lot of direct support with a few soldiers on the ground and coordinating airstrikes, a lot of air power, or we get into the situation that's like Iraq where we have a ton of boots on the ground and we try to end this thing. And we kick out a side ourselves. Um, and those first two options put us in a situation of pretty long drawn out stalemate where this thing probably doesn't end for like a decade um and the other one puts us in and yet again another iraq situation where we're in a quagmire in the middle east that doesn't seem to end so what are your thoughts on those three broad options and do you see any uh silver lining of a strategy or maybe easier to answer do you have a hint of like where Trump's going to go with it.
0: Oh man. I mean, so in terms of those three options, I would really boil it down to two of them that are going to actually alter the direction of this conflict. I think if this sort of middle ground option, if we're sort of like giving supplies and trying to just sort of provide some sort of like cursory outside assistance, that type of assistance is going to be met with the same type of assistance from the Russians and the Iranians and that'll basically just keep this thing at a stalemate. So I I think that it and and the other issue in that is And to be clear, Russia and Iran
1: are already doing that. They've been consistently doing that.
0: Well and we have too but the thing is I think ours has been more sporadic because it's difficult to identify groups in Syria that would advance an American foreign policy interest by winning the Syrian Civil War. Um, I think the, the there was like a very limited program to arm Syrian rebels earlier in this conflict when we knew which group of rebels would fight for a policy outcome that would be beneficial to the United States. And now I don't think that that's clear which group would actually do that. Um, so on, So I think you either have to sort of throw your hands up and say, this is an unsolvable problem. And it would just be best for the U.S. to stay out of it, or to go in, kick Assad out, do the job. And that part, if you remember that about the Iraq War, it only took us like three weeks to run Saddam Hussein out of power in the capital in Baghdad. We could probably—I would—I'm I'm not an expert on this, so—but I would imagine in with a period of three to six weeks, we could probably do something similar to Assad um, with
1: an Iraq scale operation. I definitely believe that. Because, I mean, the thing is, is like Assad does not have some huge military. You know, it's just like compared to what the rebels have, it's pretty insignificant. Um,
0: But then the question is, what do you want to do next? And I think the thing I think probably if you split the question in polling, I bet a lot of Americans would like to see Assad taken out of power. I think the thing that Americans don't have a taste for right now is the same sort of attempt at nation building and regime change that we tried to do in Iraq that was ultimately unsuccessful. And part of the reason that it's unsuccessful is it is so difficult to create a new functioning workable government because you, by getting rid of Assad, you don't get rid of the underlying conflict between different groups of people in that country. Um, And so that's the part that I don't think we have an answer to. And and this is something that I think for like foreign policy scholars, if you could find a way, if it in, involves redrawing national borders or reallocating resources or something, if we want the U S to take a, you know, leading role in addressing something that is, I believe it's a human rights crisis. What's going on in Syria right now. The bad side is we don't have a better alternative that we know is going to work to offer. And so the question that needs to be answered by foreign policy scholars in America right now is if we want American action to end the Syrian civil war, we have to find a way to rebuild that country. And if it involves an entire generational commitment, then that's the case that politicians have to make to the American people in saying ending this human rights crisis in Syria requires the U.S. to spend our entire lifetime rebuilding that country, and this is what we have to do. Otherwise, we have to throw up our hands and do nothing. I think those are the two choices. Um, and I'm split between the two because it's, it's really hard to watch what goes on in Syria, and it would be better, you know, the, the sort of third option that's sort of least discussed in this is we could also try to evacuate innocent Syrian people bring them in as refugees and all that. But that doesn't really solve the problem of the Syrian civil war. And it doesn't, you know, it's not as if we can evacuate every innocent Syrian ourselves.
1: Yeah, though it definitely exacerbates it and makes, it makes the situation worse, not only for the Syrian people, but also for us because it uh, makes us have a very hard position in asking our allies to take refugees and asking our allies to help in the region because we're not willing to do it. Um, you know, or at least our current president is not, even if the people of this country are willing to do it. I think the other thing too, that this highlights, um, in a really significant way is the fact that this is not a conversation that's been successfully handled in the UN. There's been some other similar situations that were far more successfully handled in the UN. And I think also it's interesting that, we're really the only country willing to even discuss getting involved in Syria militarily, because as far as I hear, and you know, maybe I just don't hear these conversations, um, Britain's not really talking about doing this. Germany's not talking about doing anything with this. And it just basically seems like it's on us in our capacity of leading NAGO, so maybe there's some coordination there. We're really the only people, the only country exploring options in this but with that i think we should move on to yet another thing about the serious story which was sean spicer so today is tuesday and sean spicer during his uh his press avail or whatever um had a uh, a tremendous gaffe did you did you hear what this gaffe was
0: yeah i i you should
1: uh i i should take it though uh, basically, so there's two, there's two mistakes that Sean Spicer made. One was a factual one. And then one was just a common sense thing. The factual mistake that he made was saying that Hitler as the leader of Nazi Germany never used chemical weapons on anyone. So let that sink in, think about it for like 15 seconds and then come back to me about, uh, why that's wrong. Um, so that's obviously wrong. The other thing was that he made the argumentative mistake of implying that someone is worse than Hitler, which never works. You will never find someone who is worse than Hitler, because once that person, if a person came up that is worse than Hitler, then that would be the new standard that people measure people against. And they say, well, they're not as bad as blank. And so as a lesson for all people in all places and all times, never compare someone to Hitler and say that they're worse than Hitler because no one ever is. No one is ever worse than Hitler. It's just a rule.
0: And I think, I don't know. I, to some extent I actually feel bad for Sean Spicer because I don't think that Sean Spicer from the Bush administration, when he worked in the trade representative's office, even like considers this argument at all. I think that there's, This is, to me, is emblematic of the Trump administration trying, you know, very messily to figure out what their policy in Syria is. Like this was like reaching back to find any kind of avenue out of escalating things more in Syria. And it isn't clear that that's the policy that the administration wants. It's not clear in anything that is like publicly accessible what the policy should be. But like the only reason that I can think that you even try to make that argument is you're trying to back out of what you're going to do in Syria after what seemingly were statements that were committing the U.S. to more military intervention but it was messy it was it was stupid it was factually wrong yeah and I just and, and, I think and, it's just the continued confusion in the White House
1: and I'm slowly being convinced that like every day Sean Spicer like wakes up to attack te- like eight text messages from Donald Trump saying Sean you have to go out there and say blank stupid thing today <laughs> and, like Trump just like feeds him insane things that he has to go out there and like feed and like put into his press conferences so I'm slowly becoming convinced That that is the case, and today he he got a text message from Trump from four a.m. that says, "Sean, you have to go tell everyone that saga is worse than Hitler," and he's like, "How?" and he's like, "Doesn't matter, make it happen." Like, I think that was he woke up to today.
0: I don't. I just think it's. I mean, it's got to be the hardest job in the administration. Undeniably, there's a
1: there's a reason why they can't find anybody to work in their communications department.
0: Yeah, I don't know how you could speak coherently for these people. Yes,
1: uh, but speaking of speaking coherently, uh, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, he he's not been doing well. Uh, I, I think last time we talked was Acha still alive? I feel like it was.
0: No, Acha was dead. Oh, Acha, Acha was he dead. Just died.
1: Well, let's just relive that moment briefly. In that. Paul Ryan seems like he doesn't know what he's doing either. Which, you know, that that was sort of like the governing philosophy when Trump won that everyone was kinda like, well, Paul Ryan knows what he's doing and then this is gonna work out for them. And uh that seems like it's not worked out. That's not what's happening. Because Paul Ryan has been pretty much invisible for uh the past couple weeks, at least in my viewing of uh, you know, the the govern workings of our government. Um, but someone that's not been invisible is uh Yup, Mitch McConnell. So good old Mitch got the uh, filibuster rules changed. How do we feel about this?
0: I don't so I even totally forgot that we could do this as a topic because there's so much happening right now. This is now. why we're
1: using the free willing um, format because we have so much to catch up on.
0: We're we're gonna make it to Georgia, I promise. It's gonna happen. Uh, I don't know. We might have to split it up into part one and part two um i don't know i do you want me to go first because i have strong opinions yeah go for okay. it and then i'll because mine are more mixed okay
1: so for a refresh for those that haven't been paying attention and live under a rock somewhere um the sing it of the united states has confirmed neil gorsuch to be the newest member of the Supreme Court of the United States. This is somewhat controversial because, one, Neil Gorsuch is pretty conservative by all measures, but I want to be 100% fair here. No one says he's a bad judge. Everyone says that he is an excellent judge. He is a great writer. He's really smart. So, on that front, he's very much like Scalia. He is really, really a good judge, but he's far less controversial and confrontational than Scalia was. But ideologically, he's in a very similar place, somewhat similar philosophy. There's some minute differences, but I don't think we have time to get into those here.
0: But. Well, and, and just to note, he is essentially a pre approved judge by. The conservative right the federalist society administration and 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 notably
1: notably because i want to come back to this as well he was on trump's list so yeah on there's a lot of things that trump has been very waffly on on this particular issue he's been like rock solid for conservatives on which i find really interesting because i think that does show that he does have some political savvy that he knew he couldn't screw around with this issue and that he just basically did what he said he was going to do. So that all being said, the way that they got this done was that they changed the filibuster rules because what the rule was is that you had to get 60 votes to invoke cloture, which is how you end a filibuster. Um, And so Instead of getting that, because they could not get enough Democratic votes to successfully get cloture, they just got rid of the rule, which strangely you can do with a simple majority of fifty-one. Which I always and no,
0: go ahead. Is it, we we should pause on just to say what the filibuster is. So the the filibuster is this long-standing rule in the Senate that is intended to separate the Senate from the House. The House is the larger body, the terms are shorter, and you basically only need majority rule to do anything. And in the modern House of Representatives, there is a lot of power in House speakership and in House leadership in terms of what issues get brought up, how things get voted on. The Senate is a much more uh, consensus-building body because this filibuster tool basically forces senators to, to consider the viewpoint and incorporate the viewpoint of the minority party if they have at least 40 seats. Um, and it was a point of pride for the Senate for a very long time. And it was a point of pride for longtime senators like John McCain, Lindsey Graham, who opposed the principle of this change earlier this week, but voted for the change because that's where our politics are going. But the idea was the Senate is supposed to be the handle of, of your teacup where the tea in the cup is hot with the passions of the country and you cool it with the handle, which is supposed to be the same. saucer. Cool the passions of the country. You cool. It in saucer. The saucer. So that's the, that's the idea. That's what was lost, at least in terms of judicial appointments, it was lost slowly. The Democrats contributed to this also in 2013. And the, and the concern is that it will also be lost on all legislation um, which would then make the Senate no different than the House. Right. I mean, I think that's what the Senate traditionalists are trying to argue against this week. Um,
1: yeah. So let, yeah. So my feelings on this um, and let me couch this first in saying that I am in Georgia and I am not in the United States. Sing it. So if Chuck Schumer has some master plan, I am not aware of it. Um, This seems like a very, 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 very poor strategy on the part of the Democrats. It's something that the base wanted. I have, you know, I didn't want Neil Gorsuch to be the Supreme Court justice, but we had no power here to actually stop it. And it was clear that if we did try to stop it, that nothing was going to prevent that. Um, Without a doubt, I want to put all the blame where it deserves to be, is and I think this is a very fascinating case study, is that Mitch McConnell single-handedly destroyed the Senate of the United States filibuster. Because, and let's be 100% fair, back in the early 2000s, oh sorry, late 2000s, so like post-2006 when the Democrats took over the Senate, there were some judges, not all, but there was about 10 or so judges um, at a lower court level than the Supreme Court, that the Democrats held up and they, and the Democrats considered going nuclear. uh, I mean, sorry, the Republicans considered going nuclear because of that holding up in the mid two thousands and they ended up not doing it. They came up with a deal and they fixed it. And then once the Democrats took control and Obama became president Mitch McConnell just started filibustering the heck out of everything he possibly could. And that's what eventually, after over four years of this, got Harry Reid to get rid of the filibustering rules because Mitch McConnell filibustered almost everything. Um, and now we have Mitch McConnell again on the other side of the coin when he complained and moaned and said how horrible it was that Harry Reid was changing the rules, changes the rules almost instantly. So why I think this was stupid that we brought ourselves to this point is that we gained absolutely nothing from it, um, except a loss. And we lost the filibuster when we're not in control anymore. So I don't think, I don't think we got anything out of this. And what's, what's significantly worse about it is this. Yes, it sucks what they did. Merrick Garland, they had the votes to do it. They had the power to do it. And that's why they were able to do it. We did not have the power to do that to Neil Gorsuch. And we also did not have a sure footing to do it because, unfortunately, the people of the United States do not care that the Republicans did what they did to Merrick Garland. I don't think most people know who Merrick Garland is. So, on that front, when we go out there and really criticize Neil Gorsuch and really don't let him get on because of ideological reasons... It looks really ideological, and it looks really bad, especially because he's not going to change the makeup of the court in any way, shape, or form. It's literally just returning back to status quo because he's basically the same place as Scalia is. So what I'm getting at is when Ruth Gager Ginsburg either dies or retires, and if Trump's still president at that time, we have no power to stop anything at this point, and we don't have yeah. a forum in which to make a good argument because we had horrible argumentative footing on the Neil Gorsuch thing because the only argument that we had was he's too conservative and they did it to us. So we're going to do it to them, which is looks petty to most Americans who don't obsess over this and barely understand what the Supreme court does. So that was a bad idea. Whereas if one of our judges, one of the judges that see the way the world, the way we do, if they leave, For whatever reason, we would have had a much stronger place of argument to say, hey, don't pick a Neil Gorsuch, don't pick a Scalia, pick a Kennedy, pick someone in the middle, pick someone we can kind of all agree on. And we now completely lost our footing to do that, because we clearly were going to filibuster no matter whoever they put up, unless it was Merrick Garland or a judge that was like way more liberal than they ever would nominate. So the fact that we went into it with this strategy and this is what we were going to do no matter what very clearly hurt us and I think that was a stupid strategy. Now this is where I'm going to surprise all of you. I think it's great that this happened because at the end of the day a president should be able to appoint who they want to appoint and I think that if someone is qualified, then they get the job, even if ideologically you disagree with them. I think, at the end of the day, and this has been shown throughout the history of the United States, that we've generally done a good job when someone is just blatantly unqualified for a position, especially the Supreme Court, that both parties will say no. And that that person will go, will just not happen And same thing goes for people who are just blatantly having significant corruption issues until this administration. This administration, I'm putting an asterisk on. But like before this administration, if someone was nominated that had tax problems or had a housekeeper they shouldn't have or something like that, it usually got worked out that that person didn't get the position, even on a partisan basis. And... Frankly, when you look at the history of the filibuster over the long term, we've lost way more than we've gained with the filibuster. Because fundamentally, progressives like myself, we want to see things change, whereas a lot of the Republicans want to see things stay the same. We don't have the public option in Obamacare because of the filibuster. Like, we don't have immigration... reform because of the filibuster like the the stimulus was not bigger because of uh, because of the filibuster so a lot of our policy objectives are actually being held back by the filibuster and while i am extremely sympathetic to the D- john dickerson like beautiful view of how the government should work and that having this thing be a body of collaboration and consensus building is a good thing and i i fundamentally believe that it is but when the other side refuses to play by those rules and they want to burn everything down, then it's insane to keep playing by the old set of rules because they're going to fundamentally try to like beat you down and and you're not going to get any points with anybody for playing by those rules.
0: Now, I hear that point. Um, I think it's important to get 60 votes for things. I think the re- one of the reasons that obamacare is not repealed is because to do a full clean repeal you would have needed 60 votes in the senate and there are what i think 48 democrats in the senate right now so so you can't you can't get there two things on this i think this is emblematic of where our politics are going generally and so it's it's more of a symptom of a larger problem of polarization than it is un- something unique to the Senate. I mean, now the Senate just joins every other governing body that we have in uh, you know getting to majority rule. Uh, it's not there on legislation yet, but from what I heard, at least from John Dickerson, was that the it's generally assumed that the legislative filibuster is also going to fall pretty soon. I don't know. I would be surprised to see John McCain, Lindsey Graham, some of these longtime senators vote with Democrats to maintain a legislative filibuster if that choice was ever put on the table. I think the partisan part of the reason for that is I think the partisan pressure on somebody like John McCain, who probably really is genuine when he was saying what he said about the end of the filibuster in this instance I think he genuinely feels that way. I think he will bend to partisan pressure in the way that every other politician does. Um, The challenge there is that we have a national government that requires coordination, cooperation between multiple branches of government. And all of the polling right now would indicate that it is very likely that Republicans lose one of the branches of government in the next four years, either they lose either the House or the Senate in the midterms, or Donald Trump doesn't win re-election. And when you're in that instance where you have polarized politics and split control of different branches of government, you get gridlock. It's what we've basically had through the second half of the Obama administration, and I think it will return. Well,
1: let, let me push back a little bit, though. That is sort of what the founders intended, and that is the norm of our government, like, the only time in history where Griglock and, like, nothing really happening that really needed to happen is, like, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then 80s. Yeah, Like, that's the but, only time but... in the history of all of America where the government kind of worked together, and the only reason why that was was because the lines between what the parties believed were insanely blurry, and there was these weird coalitions yeah. in within parties that... You know, we were basically just a once in a lifetime of our country event where the two parties were not the main dividing lines of ideology. That the main dividing lines was regionality of what region you were in. And so it was very easy for a Democrat in the South to have more in common with a Republican in the North. And that was not weird. And so these coalitions where you could come together and get things done between party lines was done because of that and not because of people having a better attitude about things or not being as polarized it was because of that and the parties have realigned since then to become more polarized so i think the rosier version of our government where things actually can get done is going to take a major realignment to see happen Like that's going to be the only thing that would make everything else I'm about to say kind of thrown out um, because that is the situation that would bring that forth is if there was significant party realignment under our current situation. What you have is you have a situation where a party has control of all three branches of government and they have a slight bit of plausible deniability that they can't get anything done because the other party is stopping them in the Senate. If you get rid of the filibuster, then they can do whatever they want, and they can make the terrible decisions that they will make that will hurt the people of this country, and then they can get kicked out of office for it. Because right now, I think that is a problem. Like with, because like let's think about it, like in a true way. I think. Undeniably, if the legislative filibuster was not in place in 2008, in 2009, and 2010, the Obama administration would have been far more successful because they could have pushed really hard on everything they wanted to and they wouldn't have kept constantly getting held up in the Senate. And so, if you're going to elect people, especially if you're going to elect people at the scale that you elected Barack Obama and the Democrats, I think more people... They don't understand this fundamentally, but more people are upset because they didn't do more, and so they made the mistake of voting for people that don't want the things they want to have happen because they were unhappy with how things went with the Obama administration. You know, everyone, obviously, everyone who's like, oh yeah, I want rid of Obamacare, but I want to keep the exchanges, I want to keep those subsidies, and so they vote for Republicans because they're unhappy with Obamacare. That's happening constantly. There, people are constantly not understanding what the two parties stand for. And so the only way that you can get past that is if you let well, the party do exactly what it wants to do and then if there's if people don't like it, there's consequences and they get kicked out.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't like the situation where it does, the, the lesson of the last eight years to me is that you, when you don't have full control of government, then you become a purely oppositional party and you become a, and you remain a purely oppositional party until you control all of government. Then when you control all of gov- government, it doesn't really matter for how long, you go pedal to the metal on every policy issue that you want, you try to pass through, shove through as much as you want, and then you see if the things that you have passed can be deconstructed when your party loses power again. The lesson of Obamacare is that it is not so easily deconstructed. And I don't even think in a, I mean, I think that well, it would be uh, okay, easier for I, them I wanna, to change. I want to back up on that, though. Just, just real okay. quick, let me finish this point. I think it would be easy for, if you eliminate the legislative filibuster, you would see a significant change to the Obamacare law. But I don't think the philosophical underpinnings of that, the idea that everyone should have access to coverage, the idea that it should be affordable, that the government should be contributing some sort of amount to help low and middle income people afford that access to coverage. I don't even think that changes if you get rid of the legislative filibuster, because I think it's just hard to undo things previous administrations have done. Obama continued a lot of things that the Bush administration had done, particularly in their use of drones to conduct anti-terror warfare. And then it took him almost his entire presidency to really wind down both the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars. Um, I just think that that to me is sort of the most plain incentive of government if you've paid attention to only the last eight years, and that's a system of incentives that I don't really think is good for our country to live in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not great, but I don't see an alternative because the other alternative is we keep operating under the old rules or the other side doesn't operate under the old rules and we keep losing.
0: Well, so clearly we've had a lot to say. It's been a little while. So I think what we're going to do because we've been figuring this out as we go is wrap the national episode there that's going to be the end of our discussion of national topics so this is you're only getting a national conversation today tomorrow look for look in your feed for a discussion of what's been going on in Georgia including the 6th district congressional race the special election and our wrap up of what happened on Sidey die Um, So for today, we're going to give you Peach Pod National Edition, and then stay tuned for Peach Pod Georgia Edition tomorrow, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share this show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.